for the words of that song highlight the commitment that we have as a church. We actually believe that the Lord speaks. We believe that the Lord is active and that he's living and that he has a word for us. And so if you've been here for the last few years or months, so this is your first Sunday, this portion of the service now is the most important service. And it has nothing to do with the man behind the pulpit. It has everything to do with the book that's on the pulpit, a book that is open because we believe that God's mouth is open every day, every Sunday, proclaiming his truth to, to his people. And so we gather together this morning as we continue our study through the book of Psalms. The Psalms are a collection of songs written over numbers of years. The earliest one written by Moses in 1400s BC. Some of the latter ones written when the people of Israel returned from exile years later. So all these different psalmists through all these different years, but still one voice calling out. Still one God speaking. And so as we open up his word this morning, we ask, oh Lord, speak. Your servants are hearing. Would you turn with me to Psalm chapter 95? Psalm chapter 95. The psalmist says this, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here's what I think is the main idea, the main point of Psalm chapter 95. There are only two options with God. You either worship him in gladness of heart or rebel against him in hardness of heart. Which will you choose today? There are only two options with God. You either worship him in gladness of heart or rebel against him in hardness of heart. Which will you choose today? As we walk through this psalm, I think the psalmist means for us to choose worshiping the Lord. And so he gives us two charges. 
which will serve as the two points of the sermon. Number one, worship the Lord joyfully. We see that in verses 1 through 7a. And number two, obey the Lord fully. We see that in verses kind of 7b through 11. So number one, worship the Lord fully. Or worship the Lord joyfully. And number two, obey the Lord fully. Point number one, worship the Lord joyfully. We see that here in verse 1 as the psalmist exhorts the congregation, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. It's an invitation to join together in worshiping God in song. Now, life is full of invitations. You open up your inbox and weekly you have them in there. An invitation to take part in this survey to get this free gift. Or an invitation to attend this party or event to celebrate a milestone in this person's life. And you generally weigh whether you'll accept those invitations based on how good the product is, how important the person is. Well, here's what makes this invitation in Psalm 95 verse 1 so appealing. It's an invitation to worship God Almighty, to sing praises to Him. Now, something in your heart might be saying, that's rather presumptuous of God stuck up of God, to, through the psalmist, call people to worship him. Now, who does God think he is? Well, he's God. And really, this call to sing praises to him is redirecting us from what we all already do. C.S. Lewis once famously talked about his original disdain for all this praise the Lord, a sing to the Lord language that he found in the Psalms. He thought it was rather egotistical of God to command, to demand people to praise him until he realized that praise is what's natural to all of us. When we eat a good meal, we praise the cook. When we observe a marvelous building, we praise the architect. When we see a wonderful performance, we praise the performer. We are all singing praise to something or someone. The psalmist here simply directs us to the proper object of our praise. The Lord. Sing to him. Make a joyful noise to him, the rock of our salvation. We often see that phrase at the end of verse 1 there in the Psalms, describing God as a rock. But when you think of rock, don't think of a little pebble. Don't even think of a huge boulder or stone broken off. Think of the rock of a mountain into which a cave is hewn or cut. You go into that rock, into that cave for protection, for hiding. David in Psalm chapter 18 verse 2 proclaims, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. So when the psalmist here calls God the rock of our salvation, he means that he's the person in whom salvation is found. That's his relation to Israel, a savior. And salvation is supposed to spark praise. 
is meant to summons singing. I mean, think of the, the first song we see recorded in the Bible. We find it in Exodus chapter 15. It follows the events of Exodus 14, where Moses leads the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. A Pharaoh has finally let them go. But then he changes his mind, and he and his army start pursuing them. And they find Israel encamped at the sea. And the Israelites, Israelites are afraid. Behind them are the evil Egyptians, and in front of them is the raging Red Sea. They are seemingly trapped. But then Moses lifts up his voice and says, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. And the Lord shows up. He splits open the Red Sea and leads the Israelites across on dry land. And once they've all crossed beyond the sea, he brings the floodwaters back and, and brings them upon the Egyptians pursuing them and destroys them all. And after experiencing God's mighty salvation, what do the, the Israelites do in, in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1? The text tells us, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the depths of the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. Won't you sing to the one who saves? Isn't that what we started off doing this morning? I mean, our first song, we sang to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your glory and grace, to the praise of your glory. You are the God who saves. Sing joyfully, the psalmist says. Come into his presence with thanksgiving, with a grateful heart. Consider who he is and what he's done. I mean, think of even the wonder that verse 2 is even possible, that we can come into his presence and not be scorched his flaming holiness, uh, kazooking, or whatever the word could be, right? Kazorching, right? His holiness, kazorching our unholy selves. God has been gracious to us. We should respond with gratitude. Is that how you approach God? How often is it that we mix thanksgiving with our appeals to God, with our laments to God? Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, to be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. The psalmist here calls on us to take the posture of exuberant joy and gratitude before the Lord as we sing to him. And, and notice how he expects everyone to sing. This is a corporate call to worship. Four times in the first two verses we read, let us, let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come into his presence. And again, let us make a joyful noise. Why is it not just the psalmist singing, but the entire congregation? Because God hasn't just been good to the psalmist, 
but to all the people. And so it's only appropriate for all the people to lift their voices up to the Lord. I'm saying that's why here on Sunday mornings, we don't simply have a large choir or skilled soloist singing to us. No, we all want to praise the Lord together in song. We, we understand that the Lord has been gracious and good to every one of us. And so we sing to him together. That shapes the, the kind of songs we sing. Uh, that shapes which songs we sing and how we sing them. Now, we're a little limited. We got the, the tracks right now, but you'll notice that sometimes we even drop, drop that track out so that only the voices of the redeemed can be heard. We gather together on Sunday mornings, fully aware that we've gone through some stuff during the week, but fully aware that the Lord has brought us through them and has brought us together, and we intend to give him praise. And so we sing. Why don't you sing? Is it because you can't? Well, that's okay. You ain't got to be able to carry a note to make a noise, a joyful noise. So why don't you sing? Is it because life is hard and you can't bring yourself to look beyond all that's pressing up against you to lift up your voice to him? Why don't you sing? Is it because you don't think that God is worthy of singing to? Well, pay attention to how the psalmist in verse 3 lifts our eyes to the Lord and gives reasons why we should sing to him. 4 verse 3 says, or because he is a great God and a great king above all gods. This God is supreme. He has no rivals, no competitors. He alone is worthy of our praise. But maybe verse 3 stumps you a little bit. Maybe you feel a little bit uneasy as you read it. I mean, isn't there only one God? Isn't that at the core of our beliefs? Our church's statement of faith, we, we say we believe that there is one and only one living and true God. But in verse 3, it seems that there's a class or hierarchy of gods. The Lord simply on a higher level than others. A king above other gods. What gives? And those are the kind of questions that we should wrestle with as we read through the Bible. And how should we wrestle with them? By reading more of the scriptures. The Bible interprets the Bible. And one of the first places to read is what is immediately before and after the passage we're reading. We, we read the scriptures in context. We do that with the Psalms. So, so in the Psalms immediately before, Psalm 95, we've, we've already pointed out this theme of God as king. We saw it in Psalm 93 with the language of the Lord reigning and being robed in majesty. In Psalm 94, we, we saw his kingly authority described as being the judge of all the earth. Here in Psalm 95, verse 3, he's great king above all gods. And then as we look after this psalm, in Psalm 96, verses 4 and 5, we learn something about what is meant by God's rule above these gods and about their nature. Look there with me at, at Psalm chapter 96, verse 4. 
We read, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. These gods are only gods in people's minds. In God's mind, they are but worthless idols. In no way gods like him by nature. It's the way the scriptures refer to these so-called gods in other places. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 15 through 18, Moses recounts how Israel turned away from the Lord to worship other gods. But he says in verse 17, they were demons that were no gods. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, in writing to Gentile believers that they once served and were enslaved to those that by nature are no gods. He doubles down in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 19 and 20, saying that when pagans offer food sacrifices to idols, they offer to demons and not to God. Friends, make no mistake about it, there's only one true God. That's the consistent testimony of scriptures. And the big difference between him and these supposed other contenders is that they are created, either in people's minds or imaginations or by their hands, while he is creator. I mean, look at verses 4 and 5. The psalmist says, in his hands are depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains also are his. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. And just notice the imagery there. The depths of the earth uh, to the heights of the mountains, and everything in between belong to him. He created them. He formed the sea and the dry land. Everything is made by him, and so everything belongs to him including us. How foolish is it then that we think that we can live apart from him? This massive display of God as ruler and creator and owner over everything, over so-called gods and all creation is cause to celebrate him. Look at his grand empire. Perhaps you recall the account of the Queen of Sheba hearing about the greatness of King Solomon's empire and going to visit him to see if it was all true. And 1 Kings chapter 10 tells us that when she had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. The expanse and the grandeur of his kingdom took her breath away. And that was but a sliver of a piece of land that one man ruled for a limited amount of time. What then of the entire universe that the Lord God has made and rules over for all eternity? I mean, ponder it. Consider it. The endless sky when you walk outside. The constant motion. The meticulous detail and order. The flowers of the field are clothed. The birds of the air are fed. The trees are watered by rain and build strong branches for birds to live in. 
The mountains are for mountain lions and the rocks for rock badgers. The moon and the sun mark time and seasons and the sea is vast. Uh, flowing with innumerable creatures of all shapes and sizes and colors, from those floating just up on the surface to those down 35,000 feet deep on the ocean floor. It should all take our breath away. And when we catch it again, we should fill our lungs and lift our voices to the God who made and sustains every bit of it by the power of his word. Oh, come, won't you sing to the Lord? the great God and creator over all. Let us worship and bow down to him, the psalmist continues. Kneel before the Lord, our maker, he says in verse six. And then he gives a second reason in verse seven for why we should worship the Lord. Not only has he made everything, but he has made us his people. Worship the Lord, our maker, for, verse seven says, he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. This creator God is not some powerful but distant deity. Instead, he has entered into a covenant relationship with his created people. He chose the people of Israel out of all the other peoples to be his own special possession. Not because of their merit or, or pedigree, but simply because he loved them. He set his love on them and declared that I will be your God and you will be my people. He rescued them from Egypt and he pledged his blessing and protection on them as long as they kept his word and followed his way. They were to be a showcase to all the watching world what it means to be rightly related to God and call others to emulate their way. And the psalm is here is reflecting on that wonderful privilege to be the called out covenant people of God. The God who is great and marvelous and above all things has drawn near to this little old people of Israel and made them his own. Thanks, that's the wonder that ought to fill our hearts and lead us to heartfelt, heartfelt humble worship of the Lord. Because this great creator God has also drawn near to us to make us his people. Not because of our merit or our pedigree, but because of his great love for us. That's what he's done for us in Christ, isn't it? And consider John chapter 1, where we read of Jesus as the eternal word of God. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. All things were made through him, and without them, without him, not a thing was made that was made. Everything made through Jesus. But then this great creator came near his creation to make us his. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt, lived, tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. He came and he lived among the people he made. He showed the glory of his sinless life and matched his perfections and power. But then he gave up his life and he died as our substitute for our sins in our place. Jesus died and rose again for all who would turn and trust in him that we might forever be his sheep. Amen. We read it earlier in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. 
And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's one thing to praise God as your creator, but it intensifies even more when you consider that your creator has entered into his creation, has become a man and given his life to be your redeemer as well, to save us and to make us his own forever. The psalmist in these first seven verses is instructing us to sing praise to this great God and King. Praise God for the immensity of his reign. All this is his. And praise God for the intimacy of his reign. Even me and you. You know, great people rarely take notice of nobodies. That celebrity or politician that you are constantly following or talking about isn't talking about you at all. Doesn't even know you exist. But the God who made you wants a relationship with you. And at the cost of his very son has gone out to secure it. He is not only God, he is our God. And we should worship him joyfully. But there's an obligation that comes along with being God's people. A requirement that we obey him fully. Point number two, obey God fully. Look there at the end of verse 7 through verse 11 with me. We read, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, proof though they had seen my work, for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. These verses are surprising a little bit, aren't they? They seem out of place. I mean, the psalmist has just gone from warmly inviting God's people to worship and praise him to suddenly warning them not to harden their hearts against him. Maybe this section was mistakenly added later on. Maybe it was inserted in the wrong song. But here's how I think these latter verses fit with the first part of this song. If, if, if you're not cultivating a heart that is joyful in the Lord as you consider who he is and what he's done, like what we see in the first seven verses, you'll find that in its place is a heart that is hardening against him, growing resentful towards his word. Now, we live in a day where we think there are an abundance of options from food to gender choices. But with God, there are sharp lines, sharp distinctions. Your heart is either soft towards him in love and worship or hard towards him in hatred and rebellion. And so the psalmist warns us here of the danger of a cold, hard heart. It's a heart that outwardly might sing the songs of praise to God in church, but has no desire to live a life of praise to God outside of it. A heart that is tempted to functionally cut God out of your life. It's an ever-present danger. 
which is why the psalmist calls us to an ever-present examination. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Yesterday might have been a wonderful day listening to and obeying God. But today, what will you do? Tomorrow, you say. That's when I'll take heed and obey the Lord. But leave me alone to my own thoughts and my own desires today. But what makes you think that your heart will be more willing to listen to the Lord then if he refuses to do so now? Friends, shutting off your ears from hearing from God is habit forming. Your heart grows not softer, but harder to God. Your ears more clogged so that you can't hear him calling out to you to turn from your sin, to fight sin, to trust him, to live for him. Now, how does that happen? It's not always so openly blatant and sinister. Often this hardening our hearts to the Lord's voice is a result of us opening our ears too wide to other voices. Friends, do not be fooled. What we intake matters. What we listen to matters. Consider the music you listen to. Is that helping or harming your ability to listen to God? I mean, what, much of what we hear on the radio is just the celebration of sin in song. Who you sexing up? Who you shooting up? What you smoking up? And how you the flyest dude or chick that's ever graced the planet Earth. And we bobbing our heads, singing along, because the beat is sick or the melody is catchy. Not aware of the effect it may be having on hearing from God, who has a total opposite message. Or maybe the, the voices that occupy your ears are those of the personalities and pundits on your favorite news network. Actually, news is a generous label because much of what's reported are just the biased opinions of this or that person often simply bashing the biased opinions and the people who oppose them. Perhaps what you listen to is the flood of posts on social media, where even more opinions are shared by even less qualified people, but with absolute certainty that they're right. Or maybe it's the voices of other self-appointed experts on every issue that you give your ear to, listening to their podcasts, watching their YouTube clips, reading their websites, as they preach as commandments the opinions of men. But you have no time for God. No room to hear his voice. The louder you turn up other voices, the quieter his gets. But how do we hear from God? Well, he speaks. He speaks to us through that God-given gift of a conscience convicting us of wrong and calling us to do right. Have you ever been thinking hard on something? You, your mind captivated, imagining your own greatness or your own pleasure? You daydream. You are stuck in this daydream about having a certain position of power or influence and the respect and the attention it would garner or having vast amounts of money to do and buy anything you want. You think about having sex or being married to this man or this woman. And right in the middle of it, the Lord convicts you that you shouldn't keep meditating on it. You know he's right. 
you know you should turn your thoughts to something else. But it feels good. And so you keep gnawing on that imaginary bone, trying to get as much meat off of it to feed your flesh. You hear his voice, but you harden your heart. Have you been there? I have. And God speaks to us through our consciences. But primarily, God speaks to us through his word, through the scriptures. But have you found how prone we are to shutting that primary means of communication from God off as well? I mean, reading our Bibles is seen as some unrealistic expectation. Daily? Uh, That is some legalistic duty. But God has something to say daily. Today, you can hear his voice. But we tune him out for daily doses of talk radio or sports debates or something else. And have you found that even when someone speaks God's word, that we tend to drown his voice out in favor of holding to our own narrative? And talk about injustice and oppression. And not through the lens of some worldly ideology or philosophy, but through scripture. Talk about how God despises oppression, as is outlined in the book of Micah. Talk about how wicked rulers and governments have a tendency to shape injustice into laws and systems, as we saw last week in Psalm 94, verse 20. And instead of hearing the Bible, the instant charge is that you're subscribing to some critical race theory or other theory from the world. Talk about ethnicity as a gift from God, to be seen and celebrated, and not minimized or overlooked, and not discriminated against. But then also talk about how God has made different ethnicities to live in harmony, in unity together under his lordship. Talk about how Ephesians 2 says that he tore down the dividing wall of hostility that existed between ethnic enemies and reconciled us both to God and to one another through the cross of Christ. Say that and watch how some shut their ears to hearing from God and instead shout out that you're a sellout or an Uncle Tom. Talk to someone lamenting the way of the culture and the role of the government. Remind them of Paul's charge to Titus in Titus chapter three, verses one and two, to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, no matter what they believe. Talk about that and see how God's word gets diminished in light of present times and personal feelings, and how you get degraded as caving to the culture. Talk to someone struggling through some trial or trouble. And see how often the the demand is for some immediate answer, some concrete action steps, some instant relief. Go in with your Bible, with God's word, seeking to allow the Lord to speak into the situation. You find that there's a dismissal of God's voice for something supposedly more immediately helpful. Thanks, we've all been there. We've all responded like that, haven't we? We find that what we truly need, all of us, 
today and every day is to constantly be reminded that we need to hear and obey the voice of the Lord above all. And notice this charge here. It's not to the world. It's not to the nations, to the Gentiles, but to God's covenant people, to the Jews. And so the most direct application for us today is not for the world to wake up and listen to God. It's not for America to hear his voice. It's for the covenant people of God, for Christians, for the church, for us to listen to God's voice and to obey it. Not to harden our hearts. So maybe the first step for many of us today is to re-expose ourselves to God's voice. To hearing from him. I mean, it's August. And so maybe many of us have long forfeited those Bible reading plans we started in January. But instead of wallowing over all the unchecked boxes on that list, just commit to reading God's word now. Start afresh. Read a smaller portion of scripture every day if that helps. Read the sermon passage each, each week. So this week, read Psalm 96 every day. It'll, it'll take you maybe five minutes. Get into the habit of hearing from the Lord. But don't only read, meditate on God's word. Mull it over and, and, and think about it so that you might recall it and use it and act upon it. Husbands, when your wife does or says something that you feel is disrespectful and your anger is boiling inside you and you're tempted to lash out at her. Remember Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that this woman is someone made in the image of God and so worthy of dignity and respect. If she's a Christian, remember 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 that she's a co-heir with you of the grace of life. Let God's word hinder you from sinning and help you in temptation. Don't harden your heart to his voice. Wives, when your husband disappoints you, when he doesn't lead in the way you like, remember Psalm 103 verse 14, that he is but dust, frail and weak as you are. Remember Genesis chapter 2 verse 18, that God has made you to be a helper to him, not a critic of him. Let God's word hinder you from sinning and help you in temptation. Don't harden your heart to his voice. Kids, when your parents come up with what is seemingly another stupid and unnecessary rule intended only to prevent you from having fun, Remember Colossians chapter 3, verse 20. To obey, not question, your parents in everything. For this pleases not only them, but the Lord. Let God's word hinder you from sinning and help you in temptation. Don't harden your heart to his voice. Saints, in every situation we find ourselves in, in disagreements with one another, remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, that we are to seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In struggles against sexual sin, remember Romans chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Therefore, we are to no longer allow sin to, to reign in our mortal bodies, to obey its passions in the pits of life. 
that feel as though we're in the very pit of hell. Remember that we once were headed for the pit of hell. But then remember Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in our trespasses, in the sins in which we once walked, uh, following the course of this world, the spirit that is now present in the, in the unbelievers. And we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath and destined to wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, has shown his love towards us. And then while we were dead in sin, he made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places, so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, Christ Jesus. We've been saved by grace through faith, not of our own works, but as a gift of God. Thanks. Let us all remember God's word and let God's word hinder us from sinning and help us in temptation. Don't allow us to harden our hearts to his voice and act as if he is not our God. Because the psalmist says there's consequences if we do. The Lord is kind here to give us examples, negative examples of what not to follow. I mean, look there in verse 8. He says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah uh, or as at the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. It's a reference to Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 through 7. We're fresh out of Egypt. The people of Israel are in the wilderness and begin grumbling because they were thirsty and there was no water. Why did you bring us out of Egypt, they say, to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And the Lord ends up providing water from a rock. And he names the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. It serves as but one in a long line of complaints against God. No matter what God did, no matter how much he provided, no matter how much he promised to keep and protect his people, they would not trust and obey him. When met with a trial or a test, instead of remembering how God had delivered them from the last one, they instead put him to the test. In essence, provoking him to prove himself again and improve his love. Their rebellion, their refusal to submit to God was met with punishment. God loathed that generation, was disgusted with them, and he promised that they would not enter his rest. And God kept that promise. Not a single one of the rebellious generation of the Israelites that doubted God in the wilderness were brought into Canaan the land of rest that God promised to his people. Their model of an unbelieving hard heart towards God and its results are intended to motivate us to fully trust in him and not allow our hearts to grow calloused as theirs, lest we meet the same fate. And the writer of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 4 and chapter 4 he cites the same passage of, of Psalm chapter 95 to call Christians to have and hold on to a firm faith in God, to listen to and obey his voice even in the midst of trials and not to turn away from him. 
because the consequence remains. Anyone who turns away from the Lord will not enter his rest. Saints, this rest no longer refers to a place in Palestine, but the eternal rest we find in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, come to me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest. The rest of everlasting life with him in a new heavens and a new earth. But we only get it by being obedient to him. By repenting of our rebellion against him and turning away from our sins and putting our trust in him alone as our only Lord and Savior and committing to live under him for all our days. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Or are you just here this morning going through the religious motions? How's your heart this morning? Filled with joy and praising the Lord? Or cold inside? Quietly harboring bitterness and anger and resentment and hatred against him? Friends, he's calling out to you today to worship him in true joy and to trust him in total obedience. Today, trust him for salvation. Today, trust him for sanctification. Today, trust him for strength. Today, trust him for joy. Today, trust him for hope. Today, trust him for comfort. Today, trust him for contentment. Yesterday is past. You can't get yesterday back. Tomorrow is not promised. Don't presume on the kindness of the Lord. Today, what will you do? The psalmist answer? Give your life fully to the Lord and lift your voice loudly to him, giving him the praise that he rightly deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would cause our ears and our hearts to obey what we've heard. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't simply leave liking a message, Lord, but living apart from it. Lord, today we've heard your voice through your word. Lord, let us not harden our hearts. Soften them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.